Welcome to our Game of Thrones Season 6 Preview Podcast. I am James Hibbard. And I'm Darren Franich. And we're with Entertainment Weekly. I've been covering Game of Thrones pretty much since breaking the news of the pilot being ordered way back in 2008. And I've spent time on the set of the show every year, except for the first season, which still kind of bothers me. I first got into A Song of Ice and Fire exactly 10 years ago this year when I picked up the first four books. I've never really left Westeros since then. Like James, I've been lucky enough to interview George R.R. Martin. Unlike James, I have not interviewed all 70 people on the Game of Thrones cast. So I'm excited to ask you all kinds of questions this season, James. And they're getting fewer every year, aren't they? <laughs> well, well, you, you say that, and yet they also keep on introducing new characters each year. <laughs> the world keeps getting repopulated with uh, fresh victims. What this is, this whole podcast that we're doing here, is uh, basically every week after each new episode in Season 6, we're going to talk about what happened. We're going to give some exclusive behind-the-scenes insight into each episode and also answer some of your questions as well and hopefully have some fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, James, this is going to be, I think, a really exciting season of television for anyone who's any kind of a fan of this world. Uh, you know, I love the books. I've loved the TV show. This is really the first season when it feels like, in a major, major way, we are just so far beyond where uh, the book... Uh, of A Dance with Dragons left us. So I, I just feel like this is the season where there are just so many surprises, whether you're somebody who's only experienced it via television or one of those pedantic people who's still waiting for Lady Stoneheart like me. Um, I, I want to just start off with like the headline news here, which is that you, unlike the vast majority of the human being race, you've actually seen the first episode of the new season, right? I did. I saw it uh, Sunday night in Hollywood. They did a big preview screening of it at the the Chinese theater and um, it was amazing and this is like uh, the only opportunity in terms of seeing this uh, bet- before it airs on HBO they're not sending out any screeners to the media this year which is uh, really unprecedented for any major show to not send any screeners at all to the media and uh, they're not doing any other preview screenings they just had one night one event and uh, gave the cast and the crew and some uh, media and some executives uh, first look let's just talk about general impressions of the season premiere uh, I know uh, you know we don't want to spoil anything here but uh, how did it look how did it feel how did it compare to past season premieres well first of all it's always a little skewed when you see it on the big screen. Have you ever had an opportunity to see one of the IMAX screenings of it or uh, on the big screen? No, I I haven't. I mean, like, uh, how does that kind of change your experience of the TV show? Well, it's amazing because the show was really shot uh, with almost with that in mind. There's so much detail into the costumes and the sets. The sound design is top notch. Uh, there's a lot of sh- times we, we go and see TV shows when they have like a big premiere screening and it looks and feels like a TV show that's been blown up, you know, that's been sort of stretched to, to fit that venue. But Thrones fills the screen amazingly well. I mean, you really feel like you're not seeing it the right way the rest of the time. You feel like you're seeing a percentage of the information that's there, both in terms of the, the visuals and in terms of the sound. 
One of the things that I've noticed in looking back at past season premieres is that as much as Game of Thrones is kind of one ongoing story, the season premiere always kind of sets up, whether it's a new setting or a new character, there's always this aspect of like, you know, this is going to be something that defines the season. Is there anything like that in the premiere, either a new character or a new setting that you saw and you were kind of like, oh yeah, like this is going to be a very defining part of the new season for people watching? I would say what this most was, was a continuation of all the various cliffhangers we left off on in season five. It didn't feel like a lot of Game of Thrones premiere episodes where it feels like uh, reintroducing things and resetting up. It felt like uh, just a hit the ground running. It just felt like a total Dothraki charge, like right out of the gate because, you know, they had all these things, you know, in in the finale from Arya being blinded uh, to to Cersei's walk of shame um, to a certain major character being killed off that you're just like, oh my God, I, you know, I can't believe that just happened. And it just really picks up, you know, with each of those right where they left off and dives right in and moves forward with the characters that you most want to see dealing with the aftermath of those situations. Sansa too, Sansa Theon, of course, you know, having jumped over the wall. What kind of confirmation vis-a-vis the existential status of Jon Snow do we get in the premiere? You know, like everyone's been kind of excited to see that in the trailers, we seem to be beginning minutes afterwards. We see his corpse. We see my favorite character, Davos Seaworth, doing something. But is there any one way or the other confirmation about what is happening with Jon Snow in this season premiere? Well, first I'll say that uh, Davos, yes, your favorite character, also uh, early on was the uh, favorite character of uh, showrunner David Benioff when he first talked about the show to George R. R. Martin. He's very prominent in this uh, episode. I mean, I'll tease to saying that it like opens at Castle Black. It opens with the mournful and very eerie howls of ghost and uh, Sir Davos finding uh, Jon Snow's body. And uh, takes off from there. But I mean, that's really all I can say. You know, the other big exciting thing that I think people have seen in the trailers is that Danny, who who is really kind of, you know, to me, Danny has spent the last few seasons on what I kind of call the Grand Theft Auto trajectory, where where she started absolutely at a low point and then, you know, became, you know, the ruler of everything and, you know, you know, got so much more powerful, like her dragons grew from babies to huge world destroying behemoths. Um, in, In the previews that we've seen, it's clear that her status has changed. Do we get a check in with her and uh, you know just can you kind of describe wh- where she's at uh, in the premiere well yeah we definitely get some Danny time obviously we saw her captured by a you know new uh, Dothraki horde at the uh, end of season five it's interesting because she's in a firmly in a very challenging situation that has echoes of the first season, you know, when she was, you know, basically sold into bride slavery uh, by her own brother. But she's not the same person she was in the first season. And that's very evident straight off. In, in your kind of conversation with the showrunners, did they talk about that at all? Like the decision to, as opposed to in past seasons where it's, it's always kind of felt like, you know, some days have passed, some weeks have passed in between finale and premiere. Did they sort of talk at all about this idea of we're just going to pick right up where we left off? Not so much. Not so much in terms of that. I think the 
story demanded that, you know, I mean, you could do a audience frustrating thing of coming back and, oh, now it's four months later. And, you know, and I always hate it when shows do that, when they do like the time jump when you don't want there to be a time jump. You know, because you you get uh, ramped up into something and then suddenly it just leaps forward. Um, I, you know, to me, I, I think this uh, opener was definitely very much dictated by that finale. And more than that, you know, I mean, just moving beyond the specifics of it, uh, it just looks gorgeous. You know, there's been an increase in production values this season. And it really shows. There's been an increase in production values because because last season it was just a you know small, low budget, gritty little independent <laughs> production. It's great to hear that they're finally putting money behind this. When you say that, do you just mean like are, are there now just more kind of extras in the background, or like are, are the sets have the sets kind of gotten even crazier? How do you kind of feel that increase in the production value? You know, you just get a sense of a certain amount of richness. And yes, there are crowd scenes which seem a little more populated. And, um, you know, they have this one scene that's uh, with Sansa and Theon and they have like the clip for it, which just went out online, uh, where they arrive at this incredible river in this snowy mountainscape. And you're like, wait, where is that? Where are they filming that? And uh, I think it's probably, you know, one thing they they revealed uh, before. Uh, the premiere, as they mentioned, oh, and they filmed in Canada, too. And that was just like, wait, they filmed in Canada, too? It's like we didn't even know that, that, uh, <laughs> that, that they just threw in a, another country on to the you know, production bonfire this last season, which totally escaped attention. My totally wild and, and baseless theory about the series finale of Game of Thrones, whenever that happens, is this will be the first TV show to actually film in Antarctica because they're going to go there to film some kind of final showdown with uh, the White Walkers. Um, well, James, uh, uh, some people have, have kind of been uh, interested to hear. So George R. R. Martin, who obviously is the god of all of this, uh, he was not at the premiere, right? What is his involvement like in the show now? I mean, because I know in the past he wrote one episode per season. It seems like it seems like we're kind of beyond that now because he's busy writing <laughs> he's he's busy writing presumably hugely long books right now. <laughs> right right well if he's uh the god of things then there's sort of almost like a church and state at, at, at this point it seems like it feels like george is is the church of westeros and and he's uh busy creating his uh, next literary miracle and then you have the producers which are the state and they're they're like managing the the rollout of the show and they're very uh, focused on that but you know he is very hard at work on his uh next novel um the Winds of Winter, uh, which we're all excited to, to eventually read. This season, I, I do think we're going to see something that, to me, is somewhat unique in the annals of genre fandom, which is two, you know, two projects. The, the the basis for all this, of course, The Song of Ice and Fire, the literary series that's been going strong since the mid-90s, and, you know, the, the equally good maybe more popular only in terms of the fact that, you know, more people watch stuff than read stuff. Uh, the TV adaptation, they may actually really start diverging. Uh, one of the things that, you know, in, in in your great piece on the new season, you talked to the producers and they very much said it is two different things. Do you have a sense of how much is the show 
kind of following George R. R. Martin's plan? How much is it just sort of totally diverging? George R. R. Martin himself has said that there are certain things he's plotting now that the show cannot do because of certain character deaths. What do you think the, the, the proximity is of Book's plan to, to where the TV show is going to go now? Right. Well, first I'll roll back to your previous point about how it's so unusual to have this on the same path and forking uh, divergence between the the show, a film, a filmic entertainment, and the source material. More than that, actually, I would say what's what's also really weird. You know, you have for years people who read the books feeling like, oh, well, we know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen. That's me. <laughs> you know, more than that, in some ways, you have this weird thing where you have the books telling the story first. And then the show. And then you have this reversal where, to some extent, the show is going to tell a story and then the books. And it went from fans of of the books, uh, you know, you know, potentially spoiling things for people who watch the show to now fans of the books going, oh, my God, now now the show is going to spoil the books. It's like it's this weird reversal of the way the content has been consumed. What I really point to as far as the shift happening, and I'm sure you can think of an earlier example of this, but when Shireen was was was, was killed last season, when she was sacrificed in, in that totally horrifying sequence, I remember afterwards um, the producers were talking about how they were surprised by that also, with the implication being that that was kind of always the plan. That was something where I felt strongly like, oh, like that's, that's a story point from The Winds of Winter that, you know, I now know about about and the book has not been published yet. Yeah, you know, I, I think that Shereen point is is definitely a good one. It was like the first, you know, big rumbling that went out there that uh, that the game has changed. In terms of your your earlier question, you know, how cl- much is this going to be mining from the future books? According to the, sh- the showrunners, it sounds like not as much as people are assuming that the number of touchstones that are there are not as many as you might think. And for the most part, the showrunners are going to be basically taking where the story has gone from this point on. They, you know, they know eventually where they have to end up, but they're really about telling their own tale at this point and just making it the absolute best version of this final however many hours as they can make it. I want to shift a little bit away from the premiere um, because uh, in your great write-up uh, for Entertainment Weekly, one of the big story points that you teased quite a bit this season um, was this idea that we are going to see the, the biggest and most expensive to produce battle sequence that the show has ever done. You you didn't reveal, and maybe you also don't know who exactly is in the fighting, but can you kind of talk a little bit about that? I mean, you know, what can people kind of expect from that big battle sequence as opposed to, you know, what we saw in Blackwater or, or what we saw in The Watchers on the Wall, the two really kind of most iconic battle episodes the show's done so far? Right. I was lucky to be on set during part of that battle being filmed, and it was incredible. It was incredible to watch because just to see hundreds of people, you know, completely, you know, decked out in costumes and swords and horses, and they're fighting furiously and screaming. There's like this reaction that you have like like it's almost like gut level ancestral like emotion that you get you know witnessing that you know it's it it like it like sets off some like depth charge inside you where you're just like whoa this is what 
war kind of sort of used to look slash feel like to some extent you know it's it's sort of the closest that you're going to ever really see you know hopefully uh, up close in in your life and uh so just watching it being staged was absolutely incredible and you know in terms of what's different about it uh wow i mean uh, horses for one i mean the, the horses are really expensive and they're very difficult to manage and there are a lot of horses <laughs> well it, it's like you laugh and i kind of laugh too when the producers talk about this but they but they all keep talking about this whenever it involves horses it just makes everything more difficult um so production wise that's like a big thing to 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 invest in is is to, is to have like a fighting plus horses you know in terms of what you're seeing on screen it's a traditional field battle which we haven't really seen so far on thrones i mean you think about it you know we've had you know the storming of of the red keep uh in blackwater you had uh the defense of castle black and the wall in the battle of castle black and of course in Hardhome, which was amazing um you have the, the knight's king and um and the and the undead you know storming that seaside village or you know that seaside outpost but what we haven't really had is like a traditional field battle we're talking like roman army stuff where you have one army on one side of a field one army on another side of the field and then they you know charge forward and engage and clash and there's a certain tactical element where you have the commanders of each army telling people where to go and have that all play out on screen that you don't you don't do that in tv shows you do it sometimes in movies but it's a very expensive thing to do and of course game of thrones one thing they're really big on is they're they're very big on making everything seem real and grounded and being able to follow the action of every beat so it's not just mayhem and quick cuts and lots of slashing and hacking uh, so they want to do it on their standards. So that's that's a huge investment. Now, James, uh, one thing that I want to be really central to this podcast is uh, I, I want to continually make totally out there baseless theories about where the show is going <laughs> and then almost certainly be proven wrong when the show gets there. D- do you know who the armies are? Because I, I, I have a theory that uh, I wanted to run by you and, you know, you don't need to confirm or, or, or deny either way. I know who the armies are. You are welcome to say who the armies are and then I will sit here quietly my theory is we're leading up to a big north-south battle this season I, I, I know a lot of people are talking a lot about like the knight's king and how they're coming down M- my sense is this is going to be the season where we're, we're going to get a nice like bolton versus lannister slash are, are we still calling king's landing like like baratheon territory that feels firmly lannister to me now but uh i feel like i feel like that's going to be the big thing at, at some point um We'll see. I'm betting that'll happen in like in like episode eight. <laughs> that is an interesting theory. I should point out around here that although I have been the set and I do know some of the things that are happening, I can't. There's a lot of things I, I, I can't talk about. I have to sort of uh, keep the secrets of the of, of the show and and of the producers uh, who are who are very much a- in the anti spoiler uh, camp. And also, you know, it just makes for a better viewing experience too. I mean, people say, oh, you know, is Jon Snow still alive? Who's going to die and that sort of thing? But they really, you don't really want to know. Some people really want to know, but. Um, for I think for the most part, it's almost a, a rhetorical question. And, um, you know, ultimately, it, it's, it's so much more exciting to, to watch it play out on screen. And so uh, 
So we're going to support that. And uh, if it seems like Darren here doesn't know what I know, that's because he doesn't. Uh, you know, I don't tell anybody, including my editors, including my coworkers, including family and friends, in terms of Game of Thrones stuff. I am annoyingly uh, quiet about that until after the episode airs. You know, this is why it was so cool kind of seeing your cover story. It seems like even just, you know, a random picture from the set now, it kind of feels like we're seeing some secret thing or some, some you know, totally revealing aspect of uh, where the show is uh, going. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, with Arya, everyone's always so excited about her because, you know, the theory with her is that basically, and, and maybe this is, this is just my theory, with Arya, we're kind of just seeing, like, a really long version of Batman Begins, right? Like, this is just, like, this this whole process of watching her go through the total ruin of her world and of her life is is, is maybe, my theory, going to make her into just, you know, this, this, this incredible person with all kinds of, of training so that'll be really exciting um what yes, else very, uh, very, uh, very batman begins the uh the, de- the death of your parents was was not your fault it was your father's still holds exactly. up exactly after taking the season off, uh, there's been a lot of cool stuff about how Bran will be staging a return this season, um, which is especially exciting because uh, in the off season, Isaac Hampstead Wright, the actor who plays him, seems to have aged about 10 years. What are we going to see of Bran this season? Uh, I, I know that like uh, there's there's a new actor who, who we can we can talk about about Max von Sydow, right? Yeah, yeah, Sydow. Sydow, who's going to be playing the Three Eyed Raven, right? Who, by the way, I've I've read the books. I still barely understand understand all the three-eyed ravens <laughs> do you have yeah. do you have any clarity about that like i think i sort of get it but like that that's the kind of mystical side of the show that although i find it really cool it, it totally confuses me possibly because you know part of the purpose of it is that it's kind of confusing and kind of out there and kind of you know separate from the reality you get in in the rest of the show but what's up with bran and the three-eyed raven yeah i'm a bit fuzzy on the three-eyed ravens exact role as well. And um, what's really interesting is, as we first reported, you know, Bran is going to be using his uh, visions. He's gotten more power o- over his his vision ability, um, his psychic ability to, to visit scenes from the past, present, and future of Westeros, which is extremely intriguing. Um, and there's been all sorts of fan, fan theories about wh- where they're going, but it's also going to be sort of inceptiony too. He said that where he's able, to, like, literally step in there and interact with the people in those scenes. Oh, that sounds awesome, uh, yeah. James. I I don't know how much we can talk about this. We've seen in the trailer that one of my favorite characters from the books, even though she has a different name in the TV show, uh, Yara Greyjoy slash Asha Greyjoy. Uh, we know she's coming back. There's been a lot teased about what we may see of the Greyjoys. Some of it may come from material in A Feast for Crows. I'm, I, I, my, my own guess is that there'll be a little bit of Feast for Crows and, and then it'll quickly kind of advance beyond that. But to me, the main interesting thing is that the Greyjoys just feel like they're almost in a different kind of a show, just because like you know, they're on the water, that, or at least you know, that's kind of usually the nature of what makes them a kind of power in the Westeros society. Um, wh- what do we know about what of the Greyjoys we're, we're going to see? And uh, you know, what can you kind of tell us about where, wh- where Yara Greyjoy is uh, as, as we begin this season? What's interesting about Yara is that she, her role in the show has been pretty slight so far, and you haven't gotten that much of an impression of her and 
from what I've heard from everyone is that she has a significant role this season and that she completely rocks it. Um, you know, even the president of HBO, when I interviewed him for our, our cover story, he like singled her out for praise uh, in, in his comments about the season. So her chapters in A Dance with Dragons are kind of my favorite part of the book. And again, it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier. Like, I understand the frustration if you come to book five of this series expecting it to be all about, you know, Tyrion and, you know, Bran and Jamie and, and, and these people that you've really kind of gotten to know. And so it, it maybe is kind of weird for for some people when you get a really big arc for, you know, for the Greyjoy sister, but she's super interesting. And that's exciting to hear that we're going to get, that we're going to kind of hear more from her. This is really a season where I think people are talking about the women of Game of Thrones a lot. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons why they've sort of stepped forward in, in, in prominence. And uh, I think that's something that has the fans pretty excited. As someone who likes the show, are there any two characters who you would be like super stoked who have never been in, in a scene together, who you'd be especially excited to see in, in a scene together. Like last season, we finally did something on the show that even George R. R. Martin hasn't done in, in the books yet, which is we got to see Tyrion and Danny Targaryen in the same place, in the same set, in the same shot, talking to each other. Right. Are there any two characters who, for you now, you're kind of like, and you know, they can be as, as, as far away as possible, but who you're just kind of like, I'd love to see what happens when those two people are not separated by whole continents or by, you know, battle lines. Uh, yeah, the first that comes to mind are Arya and Cersei. Ooh. Oh, I know, man. right? Somebody's not leaving that room alive. I mean, that almost feels to me like that's, you know, even more so than the White Walkers coming down from the north. That sort of final conflict almost feels like it is at the core of the show now. I'd be really intrigued to know what sort of happens in that case. My own version is uh, I would love to see. I've, I have no idea how this could happen because they've always been far apart and now they're even further apart. But I feel like Brienne and Danny would be a really awesome pair. I mean, you know, Brienne has just been such a kind of, you know, wandering Ronin without any real master for so long now. And I, I feel like, you know, so much of the Song of Ice and Fire mythology is about these sort of misfits kind of caught in this world of royals and kings. And I, I've always been very intrigued by the notion that maybe Danny kind of becomes this island of misfit toys where she gets Tyrion and she gets Brienne and she gets all these sort of people that the rest of society doesn't like very much and turns them into her, her kind of motley crew of, uh, I don't know if they'd be X-Men or Avengers or, or what, but... Uh, I've always been really hopeful that we would get to see those two together. That would be a good one, too. Definitely. Do you have a sense of, like, how should we be watching this season? Is this sort of, like, closing in on an end point? Or or, are we kind of entering, like, a new phase of of the story of uh, Game of Thrones? Everybody seems to agree that things are moving toward conclusion. How many hours that is, uh, exactly. Uh, You know, it hasn't been determined yet or certainly hasn't been announced yet but it definitely feels like we should be watching these like they are a thing that has a limited quantity (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. things are moving a direction that goes toward a conclusion and isn't moving a direction that goes toward okay here's going to be a tangent and here's going to we're going to go off over here for a while and then we're going to meander with this and then reset the stage again there's a certain forward momentum to what is planned in which everything is taking steps further along that path it is it, it isn't 
a season that's stalling or doing some other side trip at all. James, I'm disappointed. This sounds to me like my dream of a bottle episode focused entirely on, on Quentin Martell and young Griff is, is not going to come to pass. I'm amazed I'm, it I'm, took I'm, this long for you to reference your, your favorite <laughs> character for, from Dance of Dragons. That's amazing. This is another thing that I'm that, that I'm talking about where I, I do genuinely agree with what you're saying that these are just two very different projects now because part of the fun of A Dance with Dragons is you have characters like Quentin Martell who are sort of introduced and have their, their own really interesting characters character arc that maybe doesn't necessarily like play into the bigger story that much or or in in Quentin's case actually seems to be making a mockery of the idea that there is any bigger story but I I can oh, I I really I I feel as if you know we'll reach a point where the show is very much kind of telling this propulsive tale that you're kind of describing. And, you know, with the books, you'll just get this kind of greater sense of the kind of cosmic texture. Because eventually, James, the books will go to the Summer Isles. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure the show is ever going to make it there, but uh, the, the books might get there at some point. I think that about wraps it up. Feel free to tweet us at Darren Franich or at James Hibbard. Uh, If you have any questions or comments longer than 140 characters, shoot us an email at gotpodcast at ew.com, and we'll try to get to that email in our next episode. I want to hear your thoughts. Who's your favorite Greyjoy? Who's your favorite Lannister? Who's your favorite Baratheon? Just kidding. The only good Baratheon is Stannis Baratheon. What? That's not true. Most importantly, don't forget to subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies about us. Uh, Leave me and James a comment. We look forward to hearing what you think about the world of Westeros as we embark on this new season of Game of Thrones together. All right. See you then. 